Well, good morning. Hi. How's it going? You guys are like, who is this creeper? Like, I'm not sure I want to be here right now. Glad to be here with you. My name is Josh. I'm on staff here, serve as the directional leader, and I'm one of our teaching pastors here. And today, we are continuing this series that we've been in, in the Gospel of Matthew. And and we're coming to what is perhaps one of Jesus' most famous miracles. In fact, besides the resurrection of Jesus, besides Easter Sunday, this is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. And so those two miracles, only ones repeated. And today we're talking about Jesus's miraculous feeding of the 5,000 people. And the setting of this miracle is this crowd of hungry People. And so you might say one of the main themes in this passage is, is hunger, it's, it's longing, it's desire, it's I, I need something to satisfy me. And, and hunger is this universal human experience. We're getting closer to lunchtime, and so many of you might start feeling that hunger, especially if the sermon goes a little bit long today, which sometimes does, right? And so hung, everybody knows what it feels like to be hungry. There's this feeling in your gut, and your body starts releasing these hormones. And, and what it's telling you is, eat. You have to eat if you want to live. I need you to eat so you can live. And, and this happens every night in our house with our kids when we put our kids to bed. Uh, parents, is this your experience? And so every single night, right as we're tucking our children into their beds, our children turn into these ravenous, insatiable creatures like, like, like they're like, Dad, if you don't, I, I will die if you don't give me food right now. Does this happen in any other families, just ours? Okay, I saw this meme this past week that said something like, when I put my kids to bed, they become starving, dehydrated philosophers who need an extra hug. And so... That happens in our family very frequently, and it's because they get hungry. They're hungry at that time of night. But there's also this, this hunger that our passage is going to deal with today that's, that's more than physical. There's this spiritual hunger that we're going to talk about today. And, and really what, what Jesus is going to hit on is this, this soul hunger, this heart hunger that we all have. We all live with this longing that, that is in our our hearts that, that wants satisfaction in something, this longing that's looking for some fulfillment in something. It's like physical hunger, but it's spiritual. It's longing for some deep satisfaction that can only be provided, we think, by God. St. Augustine has this great quote from church history. He says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless. We have this restless leg syndrome of the heart until we find rest in you. And so we're looking for satisfaction. We're hungering for something. We're longing for something. And today, Jesus is going to talk to us about feasting on God, eating the bread of life, finding our satisfaction only and ultimately in the person of Jesus. That's the talk. Let me pray for us and we'll get going. Lord, thank you 
for your word, which is alive and it's active and it's, it's already doing its work in this room, Lord. And I pray that you would come and that you would show up in this place, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate the scriptures so that they would change us. Lord, help us to be more like you. Lord, help us to hunger for you and thirst for you and long for you and teach us more about who you are so that we can live not just mushy, middle, mediocre Christian lives, Lord, but with people who, who have a deep longing for something transcendent and real, but also imminent and right in front of our face. And so come, Lord Jesus, speak to us here now today, we ask in, in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's dive right in. Open your Bibles. Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. We are, I, I will read this passage for you, and then we'll talk about it. So let's look, let's dive right in. Matthew 14, 13 says this. When, when Jesus heard this, and we'll talk about what that this is here in just a few minutes. He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. When the crowds heard it, they they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go to the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You feed them. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We only have five loaves of bread here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate, and they were what? Satisfied. And they took up 12 basketfuls of leftovers, and those who ate were about 5,000 men. That's beside women and children, so there may have been up to 10,000 people in this story. And this is God's precious word to us. Amen? I hope he blesses it as we talk about it. So as we are looking at this passage, there are a few things that I want to unpack here for you. And we're building back up to this idea of hunger, longing, satisfaction, only finding our our hope and satisfaction in Jesus. But I want to start where the passage starts, and it's with this. Number one, it's the humanity of Jesus. It's interesting that in a miracle story that is so focused on Jesus doing this miraculous thing, only God can multiply bread and fish. Only God can take nothing and make it into something. Only God can breathe and create matter out of thin air. Yet this story is bookended with an example of Jesus being very human. Jesus is trying to pull away and get away from crowds. And he starts the story like that. And then he ends the story by sending everybody away so he can be by himself. And Jesus was not only fully God, he was also fully human. Uh, he was fully human in every way, exactly like we are. Uh, this is basic Trinitarian theology. The first two or three councils in church history centered around articulating this mystery. What, how is Jesus both fully divine and fully human? How does the word, the logos, the second person of the Trinity, become flesh and make his dwelling among us? How does that work? What does that look like? And, and, and here, here's what we 
more often than not picture. We picture an, an NFL football player like Clay Matthews who's playing football with a bunch of four-year-olds. And we think Jesus is this guy who at any moment he could just turn on his God powers and he could do whatever he wants. He, he could run a sub-four, 40-yard dash, and he could pummel all these little kids that he's playing with all of the time. And, and he's just letting them in the game. He's just playing with them. He's like the dad who's wrestling his kid and, and he lets the kid pin him down. That is a cute picture not Clay Matthews. That is a terrifying picture. That is a cute picture of Jesus. It's unfortunately not a biblical picture. Jesus is not pretending to do anything. Jesus literally and actually and tangibly became a human being. And Jesus actually submitted his divine attributes to the will of the Father so that he did not exercise them independently in any way. And there's a key passage here to talk about this. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says, Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. Picture white knuckle holding on to something. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What this passage is saying is that Jesus existed in the form of God. The Greek is morphetheo. Jesus, in his very essence, is God. His very nature is God. Yet, he emptied himself. It's what theologians call the, the kenosis, the emptying of God. Taking on the form of a servant being made in the likeness of a human being. This is not talking about emptying his divine essence. It's talking about emptying his independent use of his divinity. Jesus submitted all of that to the Father and says, I'm going to live as a perfect human. I'm going to live as the ultimate example for you and I. He's, he's not cheating here. He is a real person, a real human being. Jesus is the king, the prince who became a pauper. You guys remember that story? He chose to live as a pauper, to submit himself to the life of a pauper, and he is not using his signet ring to get anything that he wants. He humbles himself. He submits himself. He is fully human. That's the setup, okay? Big divine God we're going to end with, but we got to start with his humanity. And because Jesus is fully human, there are times when Jesus is hungry, and so he needs to do what? eat. He's like, feed me, please. And and there are times, because Jesus is human, when he's thirsty and he needs to do what? He's to drink. He he sees the woman at the well and he says, will you fetch me some water from this well? I'm thirsty. And there are times when Jesus is sad and he needs to grieve. When Jesus sees Mary and Martha outside of Lazarus's tomb, it says, Jesus wept. What a beautiful picture. Because Jesus is fully and completely human, he has the same needs that we have as human beings. And so here at the beginning of this story in Matthew 14, we see Jesus in one of his more human moments. I like this. Um, he, he, he's around all of these people, and then he hits that point. You guys ever hit that point? He hits that point that we all hit sometimes where he's like, i got to get out of here. <laughs> I've got to get away from these people. I need, to, I need to go spend some time by myself. I am tapped out. All of the introverts in the room, that was you during the meet and greet time. You, feel, you felt that today, right? Jesus was feeling that. 
And, and he starts to get away to be by himself, and he sends everybody away. And so I want to ask the question, what's going on with Jesus here? What does Jesus need? And what can we learn about what we need in our humanity from the example of our Savior? I think three things. Number one, Jesus is tired, and he needs rest. Jesus is tired, and he needs rest. In Mark's account of this story, Mark 6, 31, Jesus says this, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And what's happening in Jesus' life is it's busy. Jesus' ministry is bustling. People were coming out of the woodworks to see Jesus. People are bringing their sick to Jesus. Jesus, please heal my sick brother. People were coming to see him, and it was getting so intense at times that Jesus and his disciples didn't even have time to eat. They had no leisure even to eat. Have you ever had a day like that? You ever had a work day where it's just go and go and go and push and push and push, and then you don't even eat lunch. You skip lunch because you you just got to keep going. And then at some point in your day, you hit that point where you're like, I got to stop. I got to shut this thing down. I can't go anymore. And Jesus hits that point. He's got to get away. And the reason he hits that point is the same reason you and I hit that point, because we are human beings. We're human beings. We are not machines. We are not robots. You are not Mr. Spock, okay? You can't just go and go and go and go. You are not a robot. And I I think one of the great sins of Western culture is this incessant busyness that causes us to push and push and push and go and go and go. I think one of the great sins of Bentonville is this thing where we just can't shut it off. We got to keep going. We can't stop and we never take time to rest and refuel and pull away and slow down. And when this happens to us, we become what Pete Scazzaro calls human doings instead of human beings. But in the life of Jesus, we have this beautiful, subversive example of a human being who was ruthlessly aware that he just couldn't keep going. You can't work and work and work and work with no rest. It will destroy you. It will eat you up. Because either you will recognize it and stop or your body will shut down at some point. It's going to happen regardless. You get to choose which side of it that you're on, okay? And so I don't really have time to do a full theology of Sabbath. We did a talk on Sabbath, I don't know, 18 months ago. Go back and listen to it. But, but let me give you some practical questions for you to think about related to this topic. Number one, are you practicing regular rhythms of Sabbath in your life? Are you taking a day off? Do you put work away both physically in that you stop working and mentally in that you stop thinking about work? Do you do that? Do you set it aside to rest? Because if you don't, what you are communicating to God at some level is, I don't trust you. God, for, for this whole thing to really stay afloat, you really need me to, to stay busy. You really need me to keep working. And I can speak with some level of authority about this because pastors are the worst at this. Like we are, this, this one, I am terrible at this, shutting it off. So we are codependent. I love it when people need me. This is great. And, and so we, we are just the worst at this thing right here. But God says we got to stop. 
we got to rest. We have to be tuned into our own hearts enough to know that if you don't shut it down, it will shut you down, okay? When you do have time to rest, are you really resting or are you escaping? That's the second question. When you do have time to rest, are you really resting or are you escaping? And there's a difference, isn't there? When we escape, we actually leave those times whenever we don't have a lot to do, but we're just caught up in this escapism mentality. We leave more tired than when we came, don't we? We do. Turn off the phone. Turn off the TV. Get away from people. Practice those terrifying spiritual disciplines for some of us. Silence and solitude. Sometimes our life is so noisy that we can't actually rest. And so turn it off, pull away. Jesus was attuned enough to his own humanity that he knew he needed to do this. He did this periodically in his life and in his ministry, okay? Why else might Jesus need to pull away here? Well, I think that Jesus is also sad and he needs to grieve. Not only is he tired, but I think he's sad and he needs to grieve. Immediately before this, we learn that Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, is murdered in the court of King Herod. Uh, uh, he was beheaded at the request of Herodias' daughter, who danced before the king. And she so delighted Herod that he said, Hey, little girl, you can ask for anything that you want, and I will give it to you. And her mama wanted John the Baptist dead, and so that's what she got. John was brutally murdered in this unbelievable way. And, and, and then these disciples run and give Jesus the news of what has happened. And, and, and what I want you to do here is put yourself in Jesus' shoes. John is your family. He's your cousin. This is, your, this is someone that you love. John is a prophet, the forerunner, the one who set up and preceded Jesus' ministry. And then John is murdered in this trite, almost meaningless way. Can you imagine how that news might have fallen on Jesus? How would that news hit you if it was one of your family members? What would that do to your heart if someone you loved that much was murdered? I think Jesus was sad. I think Jesus was sad. I think he was devastated at the loss of someone that he loved. And I think he was devastated because he was a human being. Jesus was a human. And humans have these things called emotions, right? These are real pictures from, of emotions from science that we found, okay? <laughs> Human beings have emotions. Uh, when good things happens to peop- happen to people, they experience this emotion called joy or happiness. When, when something threatens human beings, they feel uh, this thing called fear or maybe even anger. It's this fight or flight thing that we sometimes get, get caught up in. When someone exposes us, we feel shame. When something bad happens, we feel sadness. People have emotions. We are not robots. You are not Mr. Spock. You can't turn off that part of yourself despite your best attempt. I know, I've tried. It doesn't work. It ends up working itself out in other ways. Jesus had emotions, and you better believe that your emotions absolutely impact your life and your faith and your experience of the world. Because whether you mean for them to or not, your emotions will end up working themselves out in your life in in one way 
or another. Have you ever seen that, that great animated movie, Inside Out? You guys remember that movie? This is a great movie. Go rent this movie. Watch this movie if you haven't seen it. It has a great, uh, a great theme, a great story. It's this silly animated movie about emotions that control the inner life of all people. And you get to kind of see the emotions who are taking control at different points. And there's this little girl whose family moves away from a town she loves. And, and they move away from friends she loves. And the joy emotions, which is the ah emotion in the middle of the picture there, she's used to running the show. She's used to controlling the inner life of this little girl. And and when she moves away and Joy tries to take control, what ends up happening is her whole life is completely dysregulated and out of sorts. It's because she didn't need to experience joy in the middle of what was a very hard season and transition for her. She needed to let sadness do its work. So it's this whole movie about about experiencing and validating very real emotions that we have at different points, letting them do their work. We need to acknowledge them because they'll end up working themselves out in different ways. Our lives will become dysregulated. Or when, when you ever try to repress that emotion, Dad, the stress and worry that you're experiencing, and then you snap at your kids. Has that ever happened? Not, not here, those other churches. That, those people do that, but not you. Not you, dads. Or, or do you ever experience emotions in, in a way that, that works itself out in your life where, where the worry and the stress becomes you consuming some kind of substance to try to fix it or numb it or, or make you not think about it? Those emotions are working themselves out in your life, whether you acknowledge them or not. And so here in the life of Jesus, we have this beautiful example of a human being, a person, who is emotionally self-aware enough to say, you know what, I need to go be sad. I need to go be sad somewhere. And I think we need to learn from his example. Again, I don't have time to do a whole treatise on emotionally healthy spirituality. There's a great book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by a guy named Pete Scazzaro. Buy the book. It's a great book. It's about how your emotions impact your discipleship. How do your emotions impact your faith? But I will ask you some questions. So question number one, are you aware of your emotions? Can you articulate them? Can you articulate what you're feeling? Can you articulate what it feels like to feel what you're feeling? What does it feel like in your body when your face gets red and your heart starts pounding and your fists start to clench? What is happening in your heart? Oh, that's anger. Double-click the anger. Why am I angry? Start asking yourself some questions. Do you have an emotional vocabulary? If you don't, inside out is a pretty good place to start, right? There's five good emotions right there. Joy, sadness, anger, shame, fear. Just use those, okay? It's a good starting spot. Number three, do you take time to acknowledge your emotions and then give them to God? My friend of the Joshua Center, Ryan Reyna, uses the, the language of honoring our emotions. He, he, he talks about we have to, to validate the, the emotions that we have in our lives, not in, in a way of saying that they're, they're always good, but we do have to at least acknowledge that it makes sense for me to be afraid right now or for me to be stressed right now. And when we take time to do the honoring piece there, then we can submit our emotional well-being to God. Because ultimately, our emotions shouldn't control our lives. We should submit our worry to God because he commands us, don't worry, don't be afraid. Uh, have the peace of God that transcends understanding. So we have to acknowledge them, validate them, honor them, and then submit them to God. But you'll never be able to get to that place if you don't first honor them. 
Okay, last reason why Jesus needed to get away. I think Jesus is contemplative at this point, and he needs to think, and he needs to pray. In Matthew 12, he's, he's rejected by the scribes and Pharisees and the religious leaders, and they commit this unpardonable sin, and they reject him. And what's happening here is Jesus is in the middle of these, these rejection narratives that are happening. And, and this is a key turning point in the life of Jesus. Matthew 12 through 16, there's this flip, there's this turn that's happening in this part of the book. And, and what's happened up to this point is, is, is Jesus has been focusing his ministry on convincing the crowds, but the crowds start to reject him. And so he turns his ministry to to preparing the disciples for the time when he's away. It'll kind of point us to Matthew 16 and when Jesus proclaims the identity of the Messiah. And then Jesus, up to this point, has been really focused on Jews, ministering to the Jewish people, but because they are rejecting him, we start seeing more examples of of Gentiles, the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15 and others who, who start receiving the ministry of Christ. And so this is a turning point for Jesus, he gets rejected by the scribes and Pharisees, Matthew 12. Matthew 13, at the end, Jesus goes back to his own hometown. He's in Nazareth. He stands up, and he heals people, and he teaches in their synagogue. And all the people says, well, that's just Mary and Joseph's boy. And they reject him in his own hometown. Familiarity breeds contempt for them. And it says Jesus was not able to do any miracles there because of their lack of faith. And now John gets beheaded. John is rejected. you got to wonder, is Jesus contemplating his great rejection that he's about to experience? We're about a year away from Easter. We're about a year away from the cross at this point in the story. And you've got to wonder, is Jesus thinking about the, the place that he's about to go is Jesus, Jesus getting ready to set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. And you've got to wonder, is this weighing on him? Does he need time to think and pray and contemplate before this major shift in his ministry? And so we see the humanity of Jesus on full display right here at the beginning of the story. He, he, he needed rest, and he needed to grieve, and he needed to think. And, and we need all of those things as well because we're people. We're human beings, Okay. All right, next thing I want to point out in this text is, number two, the compassion of Jesus. The compassion of Jesus. Our text tells us that despite his best attempt, Jesus, he just couldn't get away from people. People loved Jesus. He was exhausted and grieving and and, and, and wanting to be away, and so he hops on this boat, and he tries to cross the river, and he goes to this area called Bethsaida Julius. And, and, And the people catch wind of this, and they, they start running around the top part of the lake to catch up to Jesus. And you, and you can almost picture them accumulating a larger crowd even as they're going, hey, Jesus is going over here, let's go meet him. And, 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 and they all run around the top of the lake. And when Jesus lands the boat, he sees this crowd of people and he says, oh, no. <laughs> is that what he says? No. Matthew fourteen fourteen. Jesus went ashore and saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. And we've already talked about compassion in our series on on Matthew up to this point. Back in Matthew 9, we see Jesus, this compassionate Savior, that word compassion there is this word, which is this word that, that means this visceral gut level compassion that we feel, to, we feel with someone. 
And despite everything I just shared to you about Jesus' condition, his tiredness, his emotional state, his need to contemplate, when Jesus lands on the other side of that lake, he doesn't say, I'm sorry, hey, this is my me time. He has compassion on the crowds of people. Jesus doesn't get compassion fatigue. I get compassion fatigue. I get tired of the incessant needs of all the people around me, of the needs of everybody wanting me all of the time. Jesus doesn't. And I think there's a principle that we can derive from Jesus' example here that we need to acknowledge, and you're not going to like it. I don't really like it, but it's this. Sometimes compassion for people must trump care for ourselves. Sometimes showing compassion towards people will trump care for yourself in a moment, okay? I I am not saying that you shouldn't care for yourself. In fact, I just spent a lot of time telling you that you should rest and be aware of your emotions and take time to think and pray. Like That's pretty good self-care, I think. But what I am saying is that sometimes for a period of time, we must lay down our own needs for the sake of other people. We don't like hearing that in, in this self-help, self-aware, self-consumed world that we live in. We don't like that message. I don't like, hey, put your needs above other, put your needs under somebody else's needs. I like the self-care message. I really like that. But we see in Jesus' example a palpable beautiful example of someone saying, you know what, I'm tired, I'm sad, I need to be alone, but there's someone made in the image of God who's standing in front of me, and they need my help. So we got to do it. Sometimes you got to put your head down, you got to push through the pain, and you have to do ministry. You got to circle back and care for yourself. Don't hear me say that you don't do that. You got to do it. But sometimes you've got to press through and love despite what it does to you. True compassion at some level, at some point, will inconvenience you. It will inconvenience you. And this happened to me yesterday. I was prepping this sermon. I'm trying to get everything ready for today. Saturday's a big day for me, typically. And I'm working, and I'm, and, and, and I'm in, in the zone, and I'm making it happen. And, and then I get a text from a guy, and he's like, Hey, hey, do you have 30 minutes just to sit down with me and talk for a little bit? And uh, I didn't text back immediately, but my initial reaction was, no. <laughs> no, I do not. I do not have that time. And I felt this overwhelmed feeling, and I felt like, I, don't, I have so much to do today, and I've got this sermon to finish. And then, and then I felt like the Holy Spirit just jabbed me, and he was like, Josh, this is the sermon. And I was like, oh, man, I can't get away with that. And so this guy came over to my house, and we sat down, and we prayed. And it was one of those moments that you don't want to miss when someone's hurting They need people to be there with them. Jesus needed that. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he had people that he said, come, will you sit and watch and pray with me for a while? And so sometimes our love and our compassion for people will trump our own desire to care for ourselves. We've got to circle back and do that work. Don't get me wrong. We've got to press into the pain and be compassionate like Jesus. And so the question for us is, When was the last time that we allowed ourselves to be inconvenienced for someone? Some of you do a great job of this. You Enneagram 2 helper type people, 
right? And then there are others of you who are like, I don't care about people. (laughs) When was the last time you inconvenienced yourself for the sake of someone else? It's a big question. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. Okay, third thing we see in this text is Jesus's invitation to ministry. Jesus seems ruthlessly committed to this idea of helping his disciples understand that they are the ones who are called to be ministers of God's loving kindness to people. Matthew 14, 15. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. Duh. Thank you guys. You guys are brilliant. And now the day is almost over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. What a compassionate thing for these disciples to do. Send them away so they can take care of themselves. But Jesus said, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Uh Uh-oh. And then they said to him, we only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here. Three things I want to point out about this little section of Scripture right here. The first one is, I don't want you to miss how how unbelievably selfish, self-centered the disciples are at this point. They don't get it. These are the guys who, who will start the early, the early church will grow to the point where in the first 300 years it consumes 50% of the Roman Empire through these 12 guys, 11 guys. But right now they're like, send them away. <laughs> they don't care. In fact, they have a pattern of this. In Mark chapter 10, these parents are bringing their little children to Jesus. They're like, Jesus, pray for our kids. Jesus, bless our kids. And they're like, how dare you disturb the rabbi right now? Uh, shoo, shoo, shoo them away. And then Jesus says this in Mark 10. He was indignant. Jesus doesn't like it when we shoo people away. Jesus doesn't like it when we send those who are in need away. Let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. For such belongs the kingdom of God. And so at this point in, in their ministry, the disciples are not really keen on the idea of helping people. And Jesus says, you're going to learn. Because send them away is not a good enough answer. Send them away is not a good enough response. The compassion of Jesus requires us to do something more. And so what does Jesus say? He says, hey, I want you to feed them. Jesus' disciples Feed the people. You give them something to eat. And I love John's account of this. He says, he says, Jesus already knew what he was going to do. He was just testing them at this point, which he's just playing mind games with his guys. I love it. And this little boy comes with his lunch that his mama packed him, and, and he brings it to Andrew. And Andrew's like, okay, this little kid gave me his lunch, and maybe we can use that, but I'm not sure how far it will go. And so Jesus he, he, he says, I can work with that. And so, so not only does Jesus want the disciples to feed the people, but he wants the disciples to bring the very little that they have to the table because Jesus can, can work with that. And so he's empowering them to be the ministers of this incredible miracle. He's empowering them to be the waiters, the servants for the world that's hungry for the bread of life. And they don't have to have much. You don't, have to have, you don't have to be in this room and have the incredible gift of leading worship or singing or playing an instrument. You don't have to be in this room and have to be the person who can stand in front of crowds of people and teach in amazing ways. And we deify people too often. We're buffoons. The people who stand up here are buffoons. Sorry, Sean. We're human beings just like everybody else. What God is wanting us to do 
is to bring the little we have to him, and he multiplies it, multiplies it, multiplies it. And so that's the question for you. Are you bringing God your meager offerings? Are you allowing God to take the little that he's given you and using it to serve people? How are you serving? How are you giving of your life to serve others? I could give you a thousand examples of ways to do that in this church or in this community. I'm not going to do that. You know. Some of you know, and you just need to get, get busy. You need to work. God has prepared good works for us to do. And if you are serious about this faith proposition that you're holding on to, then you're going to get busy. Get off your seat. Get in the game. Okay, last point we see in this text is, is this, the, the power of Jesus. The power of Jesus. We start with his humanity, and we're ending with this massive, amazing, big God thing that only God could do. Matthew chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate, and they were what? Satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of leftovers. And he provided abundantly, extremely, beyond all they could ask or imagine. Jesus is fully human. He needs rest. He needs to pull away. But only God, only the star-breathing God who can create matter from nothing can multiply bread and fish to feed five to 10,000 people. Only the star-breathing God can perform such a mighty miracle so that it never runs out and amaze this crowd of people. And what Jesus is doing here is making a statement about who he is. That's what Matthew's about. Who is this man? Who is this guy? This is the king. This is the one you've been waiting for. There's, there are a couple other instances in the Bible of bread being miraculously made out of nowhere. One is from 2 Kings, and, and Elijah feeds 100 men with 20 loaves and has some left over. But the other one is from Exodus 16, when the people of Israel are wandering around the desert, and they're hungry. They feel it in the pit of their gut, and they cry out to God, and God has compassion on them, and he pours down manna from heaven, this bread that they don't even know what it is, and so they call it, what is it? And they pick up enough every day, and God says, just collect enough for today. If you try to collect more than your daily bread, then it will rot and become maggoty, and God does this amazing manna miracle for the people. And Jews believed that when Messiah would come, he would reinstitute the manna miracle. That when Messiah would come, he would come in the spring of a year, like Jesus has done now. And that when he came, he would feed them the bread of heaven and give them the thing that they had been longing for. But Jesus, Jesus surprises them. He, he tells them, hey, it's, this is about more than physical food. There's a deeper longing in your hearts. And so the next day after he feeds them, Jesus says this in John 6, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it was my father who gives the true bread from heaven. 
For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread. It's, I, I've been looking for this bread my whole life. Give us this bread always, they say. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. I am the bread of life. I am God's miraculous provision. I am the one you've been looking for your whole life. I am the one who can ultimately and only satisfy your hunger. It was my body that will be broken and distributed on your behalf to satisfy that spiritual craving that you have always had in your heart. This is about me, Jesus says. I am the bread of life. And so he lays the invitation out. In Isaiah 55, he says, come. And you could just stop there because that's a pretty powerful word. There's a lot of other gods and a lot of other people who are saying, go. Let me send you away. But, but he says, come. Everyone who thirsts, come. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. There is nothing that you can exchange for the bread of life. Why do you spend money on that which is not bread? And why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? What are you chasing after? What has your heart been longing for? What have you been trying to cram into that space in your heart to fill that longing? And he says, listen to me, eat what is good, and then you will delight in the richest food, the richest affair, the bread of life. Our hearts are hungry, our souls are hungry, our lives are restless until they find rest in him. That is what this story is about. It's what your life is about. And so as we end here today, what we are going to do is take the elements of communion together. And, and the bread that we pass out represents his body that was broken for you and me. And the juice represents his blood that was shed on our behalf, his blood that pays the penalty for your sin and my sin. And as we pass this, the question I want you to contemplate, the thing I want you to think about is, have I really eaten of the bread of life? Or have I been going to other tables? Have I been going to other things and other places to satisfy that deep gut level longing in my heart? Have you eaten of the bread of life because we will only find satisfaction in him. And so let's go ahead and start passing these elements. They'll, they'll be stacked up. There should be the bread or wafer on the bottom. So take two and the juice is on the top. Let's take this and pass it around. And the only thing I would ask you is, is if you're here this morning and you do not claim Christ, if, if Christ has not become the bread that you feast on, don't take it. It's not worth it. 
or if you're uncomfortable, or if there's something going on in your heart, if you are a believer and you need to get your heart right with God, don't take it. Scripture's really clear. Don't take this meal in an unworthy manner. But if you're trusting in Christ, if you believe in him, if you want him to satisfy the desires of all things inside of you, then take it and we will eat together here in just a few minutes. And so let's stand as we pass these things out. Let me pray, and we'll take the elements together. Lord, we thank you that you are the bread of life. We thank you that you offer, you invite us to come to the table, that it doesn't matter how long we've been gone. It doesn't matter how many other tables we've been to. It doesn't matter what we've been feasting on, Lord. You, you, you don't reject us. You haven't thrown us out of the banquet. You invite us to an abundant table, a table that has 12 baskets left over. And you want to fulfill the longings of our hearts. And so I pray that you would do that in, in the people in this room. And we know that that is only and ultimately found in Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for being the bread of life. We thank you for breaking your body on our behalf. We thank you for distributing it to your disciples who distributed it to the world so that now here in Bentonville, Arkansas, we can partake of the table. And so we take and we eat remembering your broken body right now. Lord, we thank you for the blood, the precious blood of Jesus, the blood that you said if we would drink of it, we would never be thirsty, that if we would drink of it, we would be cleansed from all unrighteousness and all sin, Lord. And we know that sin so taints our hearts and our imaginations that it causes us to long for other things. And so as we take and drink. We say yes to you again, God. We love you. We want to follow you. We trust in your righteousness and not our own. We take and drink now. May we feast on the bread of life that promises hope and satisfaction and joy and peace despite every external life circumstances that has come up against you, despite every busy, frenetic, frantic schedule that you keep, despite every emotional pain and turmoil, baggage that you've had from the past, pain that you're experiencing right now, we are invited to a hope and satisfaction that transcends all of those things. And so let's worship him right now because he has a name. What's his name? It's Jesus. Let's worship him now.